Well, that means we can get stuck into what we've got uh, happening tonight, which is the continuation of our Holy Spirit series. And we've looked at how the Holy Spirit, when we receive him, he is the marker, the seal of God's salvation in our lives. He's also the, the mediator through whom we receive God's presence. Jesus is our mediator on God's behalf, but the Holy Spirit is the one who mediates God's presence and his power and, and all of the things that the Holy Spirit uh, gives us uh, are God's fruitfulness and God's promises to bear in our lives. We've also looked at the fact that the Holy Spirit is a guide and that we can follow him and that he leads in various different ways as we saw through the story of Philip. And tonight we arrive at a very critical point in the, the story, the overall story of Acts, uh, but also a very critical point in terms of understanding what is the role of the Holy Spirit and how does the Holy Spirit actually bring us to life? What does he do in our lives? We're looking at transformation, transformation. Now, transformation is a very sort of important or maybe popular idea in the human mindset. Uh, you can see that through the popularity of certain TV shows. Uh, we've always been obsessed with the concept of, of transformation. And if anyone uh, remembers watching The Biggest Loser, it was a while ago now, but it was wonderful. It was a great journey watching somebody have this uh, transformation over time. Uh, and there's also another show which maybe no one's going to own up to watching, but I know that you loved it, uh, called Beauty and the Geek. Does anybody remember that show? Yeah, and uh, anyone willing to confess to secretly enjoying it? Uh, it's one of those trashy shows, but once you get into it, it's actually quite, quite good. But these, these geeks would undergo a, a full transformation, and that was you know, definitely the highlight of, of the, uh, the episodes. If you cast your mind even further back than that, uh, somebody uh, here might remember a ridiculous show called Pimp My Ride. Does anyone remember that show where they would take somebody's, you know, ordinary family car and secretly work on it uh, and then put these absurd sticker decal paint jobs, body kits, uh, you know, take the pram out of the boot, throw it to the side and put an oversized subwoofer there instead and uh, expect the, the family to be just, you know, absolutely thrilled at this monstrosity that they drive around with TVs in the back and, and all those things. Uh, it's a ridiculous concept when, when you know, you, you look at it now. But transformation is, is a very powerful idea in the human mind. But the thing that all of those shows had in common is that the transformation was largely on the surface. Everything that was happening was more aesthetic than it was internal. And so what does it take to actually really transform someone, to be changed from the inside out? It's actually a very difficult thing. And to quote Grandma Troll from Frozen 1 in the song Fixer Upper, we're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. And it's, there's quite a bit of truth in that statement. It's very difficult for someone to actually change an inward part of their identity. So what does it actually require to bring about that change? And maybe the follow-on question from that is, do you require transformation? Are you happy with your life now? And I don't mean are you happy with what your life looks like in terms of circumstances and, you know, I mean, there are a bunch of people here because I need transformation in my life. I need my boss to be transformed into a much more generous person. That's not what we're talking about. And I have no problems with my boss, by the way. He's, he's great. We're talking about the heart. Are there parts of your life that you know need transformation? 
but you can't seem to bring it about. You can't seem to do it. That's the kind of transformation we are dealing with tonight. And the truth is that the only thing that can transform somebody's heart is the Holy Spirit. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've said that he is Lord of your life, you've accepted him in, then he is the power that transforms and overcomes in your life. You have access to transformation right at your fingertips, even closer than your fingertips. And if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, then it's as though there is a a gate on your heart uh, which is preventing you from real and genuine transformation. And the only key that will unlock that gate is simply to say Jesus is Lord and I trust him with my life. And then you can accept the Holy Spirit and he will transform you. He promises to do that. And so we're looking tonight at the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus. So you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And Saul's conversion is the most important, dramatic, and unexpected conversion that I can think of. Maybe you've got another one, but it's, it's unexpected in that absolutely no one expected it to happen. Certainly not at the moment that it did, and certainly not Saul himself. He was on his way to continue killing and persecuting Christians, not to become one. And it's dramatic given the narrative that we'll read, and it's important given that, well, it's still having effects today. We're, not, we're reading about it, are we not? Studying it tonight in our scriptures. And so at this point in the story of the book of Acts, we've seen that the church has experienced a large degree of persecution. So much so, Stephen has been killed as the first martyr, and then the, the disciples have been scattered, they're undergoing intense persecution, but they're going and spreading the gospel message. And do you know the best thing about persecution? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because what we see is that the, the more persecution there is against the church, the more this message grows, the more people become bold and courageous in their proclamation of that message. And so, uh, to a large degree, that uh, persecution is happening at the hands of Saul of Tarsus. And if you can imagine that the, uh, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, all of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees are, are there sort of you know, putting their minds together and going, well, how are we going to deal with this Christian problem uh, well, they, they probably saw someone like Saul as their minion because not only was he, he powerfully for their cause, but he was willing to get his hands dirty. And so they were, they were happy to have him on their team going around and doing uh, all of these things. We know from other writings of Saul, uh, sorry, of Paul. Now, I just need to mention that I might flip between Saul and Paul and I hope you, hope you forgive me for that because eventually Saul changes his name to Paul or becomes known as Paul, and we know him as the Apostle Paul, so they're the same guy, but in our passage, he's called Saul. So forgive me if I uh, do that. And at the same time, uh, we're talking about transformation, we're talking about conversion, and uh, there's quite a bit of overlap there. They're not always the same thing, right? Conversion always involves transformation. Transformation isn't, isn't always necessarily a conversion moment, but I hope you understand as we navigate those semantic boundaries. Is that okay? Um, So, where are we? So we know from Paul's other writings that he says that he, uh, you know, had every possible qualification that you could as a Jew, a reason to be uh, proud of his Jewish heritage, but a reason to be uh, proud of exceeding and excelling apart from his uh, contemporaries. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, whom you would remember from Acts chapter 5 as one of the most prominent teachers the Jewish people 
uh, ever had. He would have been uh, well-versed in the scriptures. And he's somebody who not only has every qualification and recommendation of the Jewish council and the Sanhedrin, but he's also desperately angry against the Christians. He's not just, he's not just zealous, he's not just keen, but there is a, a bitterness and, and a hatred in his life at the moment. He is not a nice guy. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the first words that we see here say, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to, went to the high priest. And that's, that's great descriptive language if I'm marking Luke here for his uh, narrative recount. He's, he's getting good points. He's breathing threats and murder. All right, that's what's driving him. That's what's getting him up in the morning. Coffee, Torah, and revenge. So he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them down to Jerusalem. And the way is one of the first things that they used, one of the first words they used to describe Christianity, the way. Uh, it's called Christianity later and, and we'll see that in, in the book of Acts as we get there. Men or women looking to drag them out of their homes and to uh, take them bound to Jerusalem, right, to displace them from their city. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voices but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so Saul is on this mission with these letters. He's going to go and strike fear and terror into the hearts of every Christian that he sees, and then God meets him, and everything changes from that point. As he's on the road, a, a bright light shines from heaven, so much so that it knocks him to the ground, and he's astounded by what's going on. And then he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And those two words, the two first words of Jesus there, have really struck me this week. Saul, Saul. Because you know, the only other times that Jesus uses that kind of phrase is when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He's lamenting, he's pouring out his emotion over a city that he loves. And the other time is Martha, Martha. There are many things that you are anxious about and concerned about. And Jesus is comforting her, comforting a dear friend in that moment. And can you see that the first words that Jesus says to him are Saul, Saul. He cares about Saul. Jesus loves Saul even at this point when Saul is, is, is so far from Jesus that he's actually opposing Jesus, that he's going to kill and to commit to prison the people who follow Jesus. He couldn't be further. And yet Jesus comes to him and he says, Saul, what are you doing? You 
see, it doesn't matter how far you are away from God. It doesn't matter if you've never said a prayer, if you've never even had a thought. Even if you were chasing Christians, persecuting them and committing them to prison, Jesus still loves you. If he can love Saul at this moment, then it doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, or what you haven't done. Jesus still loves you. There's nothing that you can do that can get yourself out of his love. And so the first words that Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's a good Jew because if you were to experience something like that, a bright light from heaven and hear a voice from heaven, there's only one thing that that could be, right? And that is the, the God of the Jews, right? Yahweh. That's, you know that Yahweh is the creator of the universe. So if you're a, a Jew and that experience is happening, you know this is the real deal. And so Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? And you know what? That is a good question. That is a good question. Because it's possible to be zealous, to be energetic and enthusiastic and committed and being the best at the thing that you are doing and still be wrong. And we live in a world that tells us that truth is relative. Well, actually, mathematical and scientific truth is, is, is not relative. That's all got you know, specific answers. And you can't argue with me about the solution to a maths equation or, or the solution to a, a scientific study, but, but when it comes to religion, I mean, that truth's up for grabs. Whatever is your truth, you know, that's, that's true for you, but it doesn't have to be true for everyone else. And so we sort of fashion these little gods out of our own image, and we think, oh, well, I think God is, is like this. And the conversations that we have, and we pat ourselves on the back for having spiritual conversations about, you know, this is what my God looks like, and this is what my God looks like, and cool, okay, well, I think they would probably be friends. When the reality is, if there is a God in heaven who is over this whole creation, then the question we need to be asking is, who are you, Lord? You tell me, who are you? Rather than trying to create something from our own mind and our own imagination. And so Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting you, whom, whom you are persecuting. And then he instructs him, rise and enter the city. And at the end of that section, Saul is, is blind. He's been so affected by the light that's, that's shone around him that he can't see anything. And they had to lead him by the hands into Damascus. Certainly not the entry that he was planning on having. He was planning to come triumphant with his, with his letters, glaring at all of the Christians that he sees, shaking his letters and watching them peek from behind their doors and their windows. And here he is, like a child, unable to see anything, grasping at objects, being led by the hands into the city of Damascus. And you see what's going on here is his transformation, the first parts of his transformation. So we read from verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And I'm surprised to, to not hear Ananias try and exploit a loophole because Jesus, uh, God's, God said to him, he's seen a man named Ananias in a vision come and lay hands. And I'm, if I was Ananias, I'd be going, there's probably like 20 other Ananiases that you could send. Please, don't send me. But no, he doesn't look for that loophole. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened." See, Saul had entered into a self-imposed fast. He'd had this experience on the road to Damascus, and then not only was he blind, but he didn't eat. And I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't get much sleep either for that entire time. Because what's going on in his mind? He's just had his entire world turned upside down. He's, he's thought he's been the best around because he's doing exactly what God would do, what God would want. When no one else is willing to go there, he's going as far as you possibly could, committing these Christians to prison and approving of their executions, if not participating in the executions themselves. And yet now he's found out that actually he could not have been more wrong and that the very people he was persecuting were the ones who were right. I'm not surprised he didn't eat anything. I think he would have spent those three days praying which we're told that he was praying. I think he would have spent those three days having the scriptures replaying in his mind, realizing, making the connection, actually. I can see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. But you know what I think most of those three days were spent doing? Being caught in the prison of shame. Can you imagine what it would have been like for him to consider himself as the best person in the kingdom of God, doing all of this stuff, and then to find out that actually he was at the very bottom, that he had done everything wrong. And then to think about all of the Christians that he'd seen get slammed into prison, all of the Christians that he had seen get stoned to death. I'm sure the garments of Saul laid at, sorry, the garments of Stephen laid at his feet, probably haunted him for those three days. That would have been a very deep and distressing place for Saul to be as he's praying, and I'm sure that he was probably repenting a lot for all of those things. But you know what else was happening in those three days? Is that God was talking to him. We see that he's seen this vision of a man called Ananias. And so God has, has not only been talking to him, but he said, there is a way out. There is a solution. You are caught in this cycle and this prison of shame, but I'm sending somebody to you who's going to help you to come out of that. And the point at which he comes out of that 
is the point when he receives the Holy Spirit. And the three days that he is blind, we need to understand this, and this is the key truth about transformation for for tonight. True transformation requires a death of the old self. True transformation requires a death of the old self. And we shouldn't uh, miss the fact that Saul was blind for how many days? Three. The same amount that Jesus was in the grave. And so just as Jesus submitted himself to a death on our behalf and three days laid in the tomb before he was raised to life, so Saul is having to go through the death to himself for that three days in his own tomb of sorts, blind, stuck in this, in this prison of, of shame, praying, asking, begging God for forgiveness. And true transformation requires us to be crucified with Christ. And those are the words of Paul. For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he's got that experience to point back to, to go, I know when this happened for me. It would be Paul who would quote the words of Jesus who said that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it can produce many seeds. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian and pastor, once said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is very serious language that we're talking about. But it is the language of the New Testament. That in order to be a Christian, we undergo a death to self. What is that? What is a death to self? Well, it's a death to the old person, the old person who is enamored with sin and who chases meaningless things in the hope that they give meaning. The one who puts anything other than the almighty God on the throne of their life. It means that you count yourself as dead to those things. There's no relationship. There's not even a glance. You are dead to those things. Money isn't your one focus. A great partner or spouse isn't your greatest aim in life. Recognition, fame, and success are no longer the markers that they were. You recognize that that isn't you anymore. You have a new identity. You have a new life, a new purpose. And it's an identity that is in the risen Christ. And the only way that it can be in the risen Christ is if it is also in the crucified Christ. And there's this incredible moment that happens when Ananias lays his hands on Saul and he prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And as Saul receives the Holy Spirit, it says something like scales fell from his eyes. And we should understand that those scales which were on his eyes correspond to a spiritual blindness that Saul had. You know, the Bible tells us that without Jesus, if we are not in Christ, then we are spiritually blind. We're not able to see the truth. And it's only through a transformative work of the Holy Spirit that we are able to see the truth. And you know, another person who had a, a, one of these you know, big dramatic conversion stories is a guy by the name of Alice Cooper. Well, this is not his real name, but does anyone remember, remember know who Alice Cooper is? 
right? So he's a, a former, well, no, he actually he's still alive and he still rocks, right? He's a rock and roll legend. He's known as the father of, or the grandfather of shock rock. So he was the first person to sort of do a rock and roll show uh, and then have all of these sort of like illusions and pyrotechnics and, you know, magic tricks uh, that visually would shock the audience. You know, he was the guy who wore sort of black makeup around his eyes. I was going to put an image of him on the screen and say, no, this guy, and then um, might scare my children who are watching. So I thought, thought not to do that. I'm sure it was, actually, because uh, the, he was obsessed with doing things well, which all of those, you know, amazing uh, musicians are. But his, his name's Alice Cooper, and his, his story is one of typical uh, rock and roll. He got very into that uh, whole scene. He was very into uh, drugs and uh, alcohol, so much so that he was hospitalised for alcohol abuse at one point. And he also knows that the, the albums that he released in the early 80s uh, he calls the, the Blackout albums because he doesn't remember them. He doesn't remember writing them. He doesn't remember recording them, performing them. And uh, if you watch an interview with him, uh, he'll go, you know, I listen to these songs and I'll go, what was I thinking? Like, what was I? He doesn't even remember what was going on. But he fell deeper and deeper into that sort of lifestyle, literally the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. And then he met Jesus. And he had a radical transformation and God transformed his life, got rid of all of those addictions, got him on a path towards holiness. And then his later albums, it's interesting if you look up his story, but his later albums, if you look at the lyrics, all of them point to Christ. And it's at the point now where what he does with his time is he actually runs a ministry based around his music uh, to street kids to bring them from addiction to drugs and, and that kind of things. I mean, that is a powerful transformation. But you know, when he's asked, how do you know, all right, that Christianity is real? Because he's, he mixes with a bunch of, you know, very high, he's, he's met Elvis before, right? He told this story of, of meeting Elvis. So he's meeting with all of these types of people and then they ask him, but how do you know? Like they respect the fact that he's a Christian, but they're like, how do you know that's real? And this is what he says. He says, I know that this is right, Christianity Jesus. And when people say, well, how do you know that? Put that into words. And I go, you can't put that into words. It's because God opens your eyes and it's supernatural. When the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are and who he is, it's a whole different world. And the only thing that can take that spiritual blindness away is a work of the Holy Spirit God did it with Saul. God did it with Alice Cooper. God's been doing it for thousands of years with people. And it's possible that God is doing it here tonight, taking off the, the scales from your eyes to see that Jesus is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. We should notice also that Saul's actions are immediate. Once the scales fall from his eyes and he regains his sight, he rose and was baptised and taking food, he was strengthened. That's verse 19. And some of you need to remember verse 19. Taking food, he was strengthened. It occurred to me that that is not a given response. Think about how deep that depression would have been those three days. How crippling that shame would have been. And yet immediately he gets up. 
he takes food and he strengthens and then he goes on to mix with the believers. Can you imagine how awkward that would have been? Can you imagine the internal dialogue of, of him knowing that he was coming to actually kill and commit to prison these people and the humility that it would have taken for him to simply stand in their presence? Wouldn't that shame still be there? You see, the thing is, some of us tonight, the transformation that we need is to understand that God has released you from that prison of shame, that you don't need to stay there. You don't need to be continually affected by what you've done in the past because God has made you new. God has transformed you. If you've received the Holy Spirit, you are a new creation. And if God has dealt with your condemnation, then you are not condemned. Friend, Romans tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when God took away that shame, he doesn't expect you to keep trying to reach for it and hold on to it. He wants you to be released from that shame and to instead walk in the new identity, the transformed identity that he has made you. Well, we've got a number of verses to to get through and uh, let's read them because it's a good exercise and good for us to say we've made it through pretty much all of chapter nine in one night. But it's a good story anyway. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, just think about the the reversal that's gone here. I mean, the, the Jewish leaders have gone, excellent, we've got this minion who's going and doing all of our dirty work, and then suddenly he defects to the other side, and they're like, what happened? So much so that now they're trying to kill Saul. Wow. And the disciples let him down through an opening in the wall, lying in the basket. (laughs) What a crazy life Paul led. It's nuts. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And that's happened before, right? People have uh, faked being Christians in order to gain access and then to commit uh, mass murder. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And I find it very interesting and it actually resonates certainly with my experience that Saul has had his moment of transformation and God has changed him. He's a new person. He's doing new things. But he'd gone from being angry and bitter and murderous to now proclaiming life in Jesus. And yet, he was still plagued by the reputation of the old man. He still had to deal. He was still reaping the fruit of the old man for a season. That season does obviously come to an end eventually. But that's one of the difficult things about transformation is that it can start and then it still sucks for a while until it gets better. 
Where do we get up to? Uh, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And what a wonderful result. We could go verse by verse and pick a number of things out of that, but I want us to to firstly just look at that result there. Everything was looking like it was going against the church. And it took God very few moves on the chessboard to suddenly have the upper hand. And let me tell you that God is doing that in your life. And if you feel like all of the pieces are stacked against you, you've been moving in and out of check, unable to make any sort of move, it doesn't take God very many. And suddenly the picture is very different. He is working all things for his glory. And we need to trust that he's doing that. But the second thing I want us to just glean from that uh, long ending to this story is to understand the significance of Saul's transformation. Right? Because he's gone from the chief persecutor of the church to then he will go on to be the main character for the rest of the book of Acts and to be the person who wrote most of the New Testament following the book of Acts. You know, Saul of Tarsus is, is so significant. The Apostle Paul, St. Paul, is so significant that uh, when I was doing my history degree at the University of Queensland, we had an option to, to write a, an essay on a number of important historical figures. And one of them was St. Paul. Even in a secular context, it's assumed that, well, of course, this man is significant. Of course, he's had such a big impact. And so I went, I'm doing that one. They don't realize how easy this is going to be for me. Been studying him since I was, you know, five, more or less. Um, so Saul is somebody who's had an incredibly important impact, an incredibly significant impact on the world as a result of this transformation. But what happens when we don't have a story like this? Because many of us have have grown up and heard lots of transformation stories, heard lots of conversion stories of people coming from that terrible lifestyle and then God suddenly stepped in and then their life was dramatically different. And if you're somebody like me who's grown up in the church and uh, who looks at that and goes, man, I wish I just had a story like that. Wouldn't that be awesome if I could blow people away with that? If I could, you know, I would lead so many people to Christ if I had a story like that. You know, instead I've got to get up and, and... you know, tell you of all of my rebellious days when I would occasionally not do what my mum said. It, I mean, I'm sure that that resonates with people. I've, I've heard a lot of people say that. You know, why can't our story be that significant? And you know, God has done a lot of work in me to show me actually how that perspective is quite wrong. And I think that there are two reasons that we might have that perspective have that perspective that, you know, if only I'd had that dramatic story, then things would be better. My, my testimony would be more powerful. There are two reasons. Firstly, you haven't realised the extent of grace in your story. You haven't realised the extent of grace in your story. And secondly, perhaps, not everyone, but perhaps, you haven't let God really transform you. 
The first one, you haven't realized the extent of grace in your story. You know, it, it blew me away when I made this uh, connection, but it's, you know, some people will try and pat you on the back and say, you know, they're there, Christian. Did you know that every saving work of God is an incredible work of grace? And you should be just excited that you got saved as that person who was, you know, on death row. And I think that we need to understand there's more than a pat on the back here. If you are a Christian, your story is far more significant and full of grace than you could ever hope and imagine. Because if you cast your eyes back to the story of Abraham, Abraham, we are told, was living in a land called the Ur of Chaldeans, which is ancient Babylon. And the dominant religion at that time was uh, worshiping the moon. You need to understand that no one knew about God. No one knew about Yahweh. There was this blackout period before Abraham. You had Noah, uh, and then eventually you had the Tower of Babel, you know, everyone's spreading out. And then we, we don't hear about anyone following God at all for that period of time until suddenly we get told that God sees Abraham and wants to talk to him. All right, so Abraham's worshiping the moon like the rest of his family over there. And it's, if you look at Abraham's story, he never once meets somebody else who knows about or worships God apart from the high priest Melchizedek. And that's another story. You can, we've had a sermon on that before. So Abraham is the only one who knows God. And, and so what does God do? God speaks to Abraham. He says, come out of where you are. I'm gonna transform you. You're gonna have this radical conversion of, of going from your sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle over in ancient Babylon. You're gonna come and you're gonna worship me. Why? So that I can make you a great nation. So that I can bless your descendants so that your children and your children's children and your children's children's children don't have to have the story that you had. Don't have to be taken from the depths of sin and depravity and far away from God. I've saved you so that you can pass this on to your kids and so that they don't have to experience that lifestyle. And so I am so proud to be able to say that grace started a long time ago in my family. So far ago that I actually don't know who was the first person to be saved, but I know that at that point, God knew me as well, right? And he, he saved me from ever having to be in that situation. That is grace. And if you're someone who knows Jesus, your story is powerful because the grace that's been poured out on your life, maybe it started one generation ago, Maybe it started two, maybe it started 10. Praise God for that. That was the whole point of calling Abraham out of that land, was to have generational blessing and following of Jesus. Maybe you're the first generation. Maybe you're the Abraham in your family. Maybe it's you that God's chosen to take out of that place so that your descendants don't have to experience what it was like. It's so funny. If you, if you hear somebody who has that kind of story, ask them, would you want your, your kids to have the same story? No, of course they wouldn't. It's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> there is grace. There is so much grace in your story. And you know what? Sometimes it just takes a, a, a shift in our mindset for us to actually understand this because shortly after I made this realisation about Abraham and about God's purpose in, in saving uh, people so that you know their families would be blessed. I was also walking a journey of transformation of my own, and God showed me a picture of who I would have become without Jesus. 
You know, God uh, said to me through, through somebody else uh, when I was 17, uh, said that if you don't get your life right with God by the end of this year, then by the time you're 25, you will no longer call yourself a Christian. And so I had a good picture, a vivid picture of I knew what I was like. I was ultra competitive. I loved to win, hated to lose. Other people were pretty low on the priority list. And so I knew the person that I would have become, that competitiveness would have turned into somebody who didn't care about others and who would do whatever it takes to get above them in whatever context we're in. God showed me a clear picture of who I would be if it were not for grace. And you know, there's a principle that uh, Jesus says that he who is forgiven little loves little, but he who is forgiven much loves much. And I always felt like that was a condemnation (laughs) as a Christian, someone who hasn't been forgiven as much as another person. And then I realized, actually, I've been saved from and forgiven from even the person that I would have been. And maybe there are some people here who need to make that realization as well. So that is the first reason that we might have that perspective, is that we haven't realized the extent of grace in our story. And the second reason is that perhaps you haven't let God really transform you. And I get in trouble for saying this to to Christians, but I'm going to say it anyway, and and Holy Spirit, cover this and and do what you will. Because some people have a a weak, uh, feel as though they have a weak testimony, possibly because they actually haven't let God do anything in their life. They have no testimony because they have no transformation. And Saul had to undergo a death to self in order for for Christ's transformation to really happen in his life. And it's possible that there are uh, some people here who don't know what it's like, who don't know what it feels like to undergo a death to self. And I want you to think of a caterpillar. Because a caterpillar, when it comes to the right time, it uh, hangs itself from a, a twig or a branch or whatever, a leaf, and then it creates itself a chrysalis. And then inside that chrysalis, it starts to undergo a transformation. And the first thing that happens is that it digests itself and it turns its little caterpillar body into soup. And it's only out of that soup that the, the various body parts of the butterfly begin to be formed, the antenna, the body, the legs, and eventually the beautiful wings. And that's what it's like to undergo a death to self, that like the three days in the tomb that Jesus spent dying on behalf of us, like the three days blind that Saul spent undoing every value, every mindset, every truth that he thought was truth but wasn't, all turning to soup, all becoming becoming digestive. And it's a very difficult and painful process. It can be. It can be a very painful process, undoing all of that, but it is a very necessary thing in order to get to the point where the butterfly begins to come. You know, the, the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews uh, tells us that all discipline is painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. And Paul spends much of, of his time in the New Testament articulating this idea of death to self that you have to be crucified with Christ in order to be raised with him. 
And take it from Saul, take it from Paul, that this process of death to self, though it might be painful in the moment, later becomes the best thing he ever did, to the point where he would say that I count all things as loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. And you know, um, Amy, you could come on up. We, we nearly finish. You see, the chrysalis was a tomb for the caterpillar, but it was a womb for the butterfly. And in the same way, your death to self can be a painful process of letting go of the old you that doesn't know how to follow God. But it gives birth to new desires, new hope, new love, new life in Christ. And as one of the most influential Christians who ever lived, Paul said that every minute was worth it. That after the chrysalis of transformation and after the soup of his old man is born the most powerful and influential man in the Christian faith by Jesus himself. The transformation is worth it. And maybe, maybe there are some people here who need to spend some time in the chrysalis. You know, I remember the, the, the moment I realised that I needed transformation. And it was a simple realisation. I, I sort of did a stock take of the last day and then the last week. And I just was, was counting the number of conversations that I had where I'd said the word me and where I'd said I and the number of conversations where I'd said the word you. And I realised that every conversation, every interaction that I had with other people was about myself. And I thought, wow, that's wrong. That's not right. And I knew that I needed to be transformed. And then that led to a season of this chrysalis experience where all of those values and those desires to, to, you know, to be self-important and all of that, just God was just turning it to soup. And just like Saul, there was a season where I knew that I was transformed, that I was transforming, and it was hard. It was painful. It was full of tears and lots of prayer. And yet I was still reaping the rewards of the old man. You know, it was happening about the time I... Uh, turned 21 and my uh, auntie, who I'm close with, uh, threw a surprise 21st birthday party for me. And uh, the only people who came who weren't my family, that well, there was two, two people came who weren't my family. And I was in that painful process of, of being soup <laughs> and still reaping the rewards of that old life and that old man and that old self. But you know what? There did come a moment months later when sitting with a group of friends, one of my friends said publicly in front of everyone, it's like, you know, there was a day a few months ago where you just came back and you were different. She was like, it was like all of the spiky bits of Sandy just fell off. And I knew <laughs> that the chrysalis had finished. <laughs> that time had come to an end and that it was God's grace and transformation that had got me there. So we're going to have a moment of, of worship and, and prayer and, and response. And it's possible that there are some people here who may need to spend some time in that chrysalis. That if you're being honest with yourself, there are some things that you know God would like to transform about your life and maybe you've been hanging on to them 
and uh, not being willing to transform. I can promise you the journey is worth it. Please, Paul can promise you the journey is worth it. Maybe it responds, maybe it starts by responding on your knees and maybe by naming what it is that God has to do to transform you. There's some of you here who need to go back to verse 19. Paul took food and he was strengthened. He got up. He didn't stay in that prison of shame. But he knew that God transformed him supernaturally, that he didn't carry around that baggage and that he had the, the, the strength and, and the power and the motivation to actually get through that season of the chrysalis. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are a God of transformation and that, Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit not to sit us in a, a makeover chair in a salon and you know, put on all of this extra stuff to make us look good, but, God, you've You've come into our hearts. You've come into our life so that you can perform surgery from the inside. And that we desperately need that transformation. And so God, I just pray over everybody here tonight that you would be answering their prayer for transformation. That the testimony that you will write in their life is gonna be one that only points to God. Because if we're honest, we can't change ourselves. We can't will ourselves into being better or being different. And so I just bless that journey of transformation. I bless that moment of entering the chrysalis. And I ask for you to give them the courage and the, and the insight to respond how you want them to respond. And God, for those who need to be lifted from that old man, lifted from that identity, who are still uh, imprisoned by the shame and the condemnation and the regret from who they once were, God, I pray that you would transform their mind right now. Your word says that we should be having the transforming of our mind, the renewal of our mind, that we now we have the mind of Christ who says you're not condemned. There is no cause for shame in your life. That's forgiven. It's not you anymore. So I pray that you would lift them out of that. As usual, we'll have the opportunity to uh, have prayer. That will be uh, up the front here with some prayer ministry teams. So if there's anything that you would like prayer for, then please be welcome to fill that space. God, we just want to thank you and ask that you've, you're writing a story that, that is long, we're here for the long haul and not for a moment where things look pretty or where, you know, there's, there's a flash of fireworks. But God, you're doing a work that's going to last a long time. And so we just submit to you.